<laughs> Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please uh, go to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel in your Bibles. We're going to uh, look at chapter 8, Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to look at the last 11 verses, 48 through 59, Gospel of John chapter 8, verse, verses 48 through 59. All right, and if, <clears throat> if you are ready, I'm going to read, then I'll pray, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Starting with uh, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Blessed be the reading of God's sacred word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have sent your Son, Jesus, not to seek His own glory, but He came to be humiliated and despised and abandoned and betrayed. And He humbled Himself. And He suffered the punishment that was not due to Him so that we would enjoy His life that He has given to us. I pray, Father, that all of us here today would, be, would have our hearts invaded, flooded by your love, and that we would behold Jesus better than ever before, and our affections for him would just rise and rise. That we would love him. Give us broken hearts, broken and contrite hearts that love Jesus and hate sin. Break every, every piece of religion that may lie still in us, Crush every idol in our heart through the proclamation of your word. Let us see Jesus on the pages of Scripture 
today. For your glory and our joy is that I ask in his precious holy name. Amen. So we see that they start with very nice words. And it's an argument. And maybe it hasn't happened to you, but who doesn't know what it is to be in a heated argument? I mean, even a better question is, who doesn't know what it is to be on the losing end of a heated argument? When everything you throw at the person, they have a good answer for it. They have a good comeback. And after a while, because arguments and emotions, they have this weird power over us somehow, you know, cheeks start getting red and, and, and veins start popping up on the forehead. And next thing you know, your answers to the questions they didn't ask, they're a lot louder than before. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, it's not only that his point is bad, but I don't even like him. Of course I can yell at him and call him names. I never like him anyway. That has happened too. Probably most of us. Arguments, they have these weird stages where they start intellectually, where you say what you like or don't like or how you see things, and then you know, the person doesn't buy it or they have a different opinion, and, and somehow emotions take, grab a hold of us, and the volume rises. And so now it's a louder volume. We're talking past each other. All of a sudden you're nervous and, and you, you start justifying that you can attack the person, especially if you're losing the argument. You can attack the person, uh, the person, not the argument. You can shift the focus to just insults. And in general, that doesn't bring about solutions, does it? I guess probably most of us have learned that the hard way. You know, that angry words normally don't bring about solution. Personal insults. Technically, you know, the ad hominem, when you forget the argument and you deal with the man, you deal with the person, you just attack the person, that normally goes bad. And then once you start yelling and calling people, na people names, the only thing left to do, and if you, if you give them enough time, someone will be physically assaulted at some point. It just happens. It's just how it is. You know? And it seems like this is exactly where this argument with Jesus and the Pharisees and, and the Jewish leaders refer to this text in this text as the Jews. It seems like this is exactly where this argument is going. Jesus is not the least intimidated by their words. Jesus is not trapped, cornered by their words just has good answers and Jesus is brutally honest with them but he doesn't engage in name calling and, and fighting in a way that, that uh, doesn't glorify God. Jesus just answers them and tells them the truth pursues them with the truth confronts their sin it's like we should do it's not a, a thing against the Jews or against the, the leadership of the Jews it's confronting sin whether it's Jewish sin or Gentile sin, sin is to be confronted with the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus does. This is an argument that has been going on for a while. For example, in chapter 7, someone, people start wondering, is this the Messiah? Then someone says, I mean, this Jesus person, he's been doing a lot of things. When the Messiah comes, is, is the Messiah going to perform greater miracles than this? Is going to do more stuff than this? 
So the Jewish leaders, they hear this and they get infuriated. So they sent the police, the temple police, to arrest Jesus. Arrest him. So they take forever. Jesus, in the end of the feast, Jesus takes the moment, the climax of the feast, and he claims to be the one who can satisfy all the longings of the human heart. He says, you know, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me. Come and follow me, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's just a Bible way. I, I, I dealt with it uh, and, and on that sermon in chapter 7. Just a Bible way of saying, you believe in me. Jesus is saying, you believe in me, the Holy Spirit, with all of his power and blessings and benefits. And all of the blessings of the kingdom are yours through the Holy Spirit of God. And you're going to overflow with living water, which is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Through believing in Jesus, you, you, you become a partaker of this huge kingdom of the beloved Son of God. So Jesus says that. Now the leaders are really infuriated. And then the guards take forever. The police doesn't come. And they're wondering what in the world has happened to the guards. And then finally the guards show up and they're empty-handed. And the leaders are going, where is Jesus? Where is this man? And they're like, you know what? We're underpaid, we're overworked, okay? And now we might be out of a job, but we are not going to lay hands on this man. We have never seen anybody preaching like this man does. He speaks as if he wrote the book himself. We've never seen such power. I mean, we see everybody preaching, we see you guys preaching. This Jesus character, he's different. We ain't going to touch him. So things go wrong once again. So now, they will not, they, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, they will not relent. They are relentless in trying to get Jesus and kill Jesus and get rid of Jesus. Like I said many times, these chapters eight, uh, 7 and 8, they are probably one of the most violent as far as intentions uh, about killing Jesus. There's several reference about arrest, references about arresting Jesus or killing Jesus, and they just can't get it done. So they go to the next step where they go, you know what? We can't lay hands on him because even the police won't touch him. So we cannot grab him. Let's just trap him. Here's what we're going to do. Let's just trap him in his words. Okay, let's put him in a corner. He's going to be either in trouble with the crowd or the Romans. So in the beginning of chapter 8, they bring this woman that was... I mean, this is early in the morning. Jesus is teaching. Early in the morning, they bring... They're already up and up to something. They're up to fighting Jesus. So they bring this woman who had allegedly been uh, uh, caught in the very act of adultery, right? So they bring this woman, they put the woman in front of him in, in the middle of the crowd, and, and they'll say, you know what, this woman, she was caught in adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone her. What do you think, Jesus? What do you say? So now Jesus is trapped, because if Jesus says, you know what, don't stone her, they can say, aha, see, this Jesus guy, he is a God-hater. He is against the law of Moses. He doesn't believe the law of Moses. He's clearly disobeying the law of Moses. The God of Moses is not his God. He is a farce. He is a fake. He's another one of those false messiahs. On the other hand, if Jesus says, you know, stoner then, they would gladly pick up stones and, and kill that lady, that woman. They would gladly do it. You know why? Because the Romans did not allow anybody to execute their criminals. 
They allowed them to practice their religion to some point or whatever, but they did not allow a Jewish citizen to kill anybody. The Romans had to kill their criminals. And that's that no one would execute their criminals. So now what is... What would Jesus do now? What is he going to do? Because now it seems like he has nowhere to go. If Jesus commands the woman to be, to be dead, to be stoned to death, then the Romans would come and seize him. Say, so you know what? You broke the law. You're going to be punished by death. And now the Jewish leaders are free from Jesus. This troublemaker is gone. We got rid of him. Jesus wouldn't be trapped by these guys. So Jesus calmly says, you know, if uh, anyone is without sin, let him cast the first stone. They laughed, humiliated, all of them, from the youngest to the oldest. No one could say, you know what, I'm perfect, I'm throwing a stone. No one could do that. And one by one, they started dropping their stones, and they laughed humiliated. So, I mean, they're losing this argument horribly, horribly. Right. Second page. They're losing this argument horribly. Everything they throw at Jesus, Jesus has an answer, and, um, and he just uh, shuts them down. So they start, after that, they start uh, attacking his credibility, right? Because, you know, we, we can catch him right after that. They're like, you know what? You keep making all these claims or whatever. You, you keep talking. But you know what happens? You don't have any witnesses. You're just saying in your own witness. You're the only one testifying about yourself. You know, your testimony is not valid. Jesus says, you know what? You want witnesses? My Father, God Himself is my witness. God clearly is on His side. God has spoke from heaven publicly. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, one more time, they don't have an answer because they wanted witnesses. Jesus gave them the best witness there can be. He's like, you know what? I don't need the testimony of man. You know, even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true. But you want a witness? My father is my witness. They say, you know what? Where's your father? Who is this father of yours? My father is the one that you claim to be your God. You do not know him. You don't know my father. Jesus once again is telling the Jewish leadership, the ones that claim to have the oracles of God, the ones that claim to have exclusive authority to talk in the name of God, to expound the scriptures, to tell them what the law is, to interpret the scriptures, Jesus is saying to them, you claim to know God, you do not know Him. You wouldn't know God if He stood in front of you and spoke with you. You wouldn't be able to recognize Him. Because in fact, that's exactly what's happening. God in human flesh is talking to them, and they're not even able to recognize it. In verse 21 of chapter 8, Jesus says, You know, where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you're not coming. And they, by their own ingenuity, their own assumptions, because they're holy. They're holier than everybody else. They had this interpretation about suicide. If you kill yourself, no matter what, you will go to hell. 
theology of hell wasn't developed as, as it is now because of the words of Jesus, but the equivalent, it was like the lowest, darkest, worst part of Hades, totally equivalent to the worst punishment that there can be. They're holy. They're too holy to go anywhere near to that. So they say, you know what? Where can Jesus go that we cannot go? Oh, it has to be hell. He's going to kill himself. He's going to go to hell. We can't go there because, I mean, we're so much more awesome than him. We'll never be cast into hell. They are so twisted that they see God and they think it's a demon. They, they see evil, they think it's good. That's the twisting that, that, that sin makes you see things distorted. I mean, think about the, the craziness of looking at the Son of God, the one who spoke the universes into existence and assume that He is going to hell and that you are holier than Him. The Son of God who has at this point performed several miracles in front of them. I mean, crazy powerful miracles. Crazy stuff had happened already in front of them that they cannot refute. They're arguing. These men, they are PhDs of their day. They're arguing with Jesus. And they have nothing on him. Even in verse 46, they'll say, Jesus will say, you know what? Which one of you can convict me of sin? What have I done? When, when did I break the law? Come on, bring it on. They have nothing. They can't say a thing about the man. You know? And they're like, the guards themselves will say, you know, we won't touch him because he has some kind of power that we've never seen. They have all this witness about the power of Jesus and who Jesus is. But sin makes you see things in such a distorted manner that only the Word of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God can help us see things straight. The lenses of the Holy Spirit have to come on so that you can discern these spiritual things. Now in verse 48, we'll, we'll come to, to our main portion of our, of our uh, text today. In verse 48, they, they say, you know, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that's a double whammy. A Samaritan? A Samaritan? And a demon-possessed Samaritan? A Samaritan is someone that in their, I mean, a little bit of the history is that a Samaritan, or they were Jews, okay, uh, sons of Abraham, uh, descendants of Abraham, that because of some invasions that happened and displacement, they started, you know, they gave up all their history and, and their uh, loyalty to their ethnicity or whatever, and they started intermarrying people from other tribes and tongues and, and, and people from different nationalities. And with that, obviously, your identity gets mixed. You know, other gods from other nations, they will come and, you know, you, you marry a woman who worships a different god. Next thing you know, you're worshiping that god as well and vice versa. It, it's just, they got messed up. So the Jews declared war against them. They said, you know what? We have in Samaria, we have our holy sites too. We're going to create our own religion. We're going to give up some, some books of the Bible. We're going to believe this. We're going to have our own version of the story. And they declared war against the Jews. They despised each other. Because the way the Jews saw the ones that, that, um, that sold out, the Samaritans, it's like, that's all they are. They're sellouts. They gave up our ethnicity, our God, our country, our nation. They just gave it all up because they wanted to intermarry. 
They are God belittling, Israel hating, God betrayer, despicable human, half breed human beings. It was racist. It was, it was cultural. It was nasty. In chapter 4, we have a little brief, just glimpse of what it is when Jesus is talking to the woman uh, at the well, and, and they start talking about water or whatever, that he's going to give her water. And she's like, you know, the Jews don't, we don't share stuff. We have nothing in common with the Jews. We don't drink out of the same bucket or water. You know, they, don't even, they didn't even do that. I mean, to go from Judea to Galilee, they had to pass through, through Samaria. The most religious Jews, they would go make the trip a lot longer to go around the sea to not set foot on Samaritan soil. That's how much these peoples hated each other. To call someone a Samaritan was the worst insult you could think of. It wasn't nice. It wasn't nice at all. The worst thing you could call someone was a Samaritan in the Jewish community. Um, also, the Samaritans, they were also despised by other peoples because, you know, they're not fully Gentiles either. They're not fully from any other nation. So they're kind of dogged by both sides. They, they have nowhere to go. They're really outcasts. So they really hate it. And they fight back. They also hate everybody. So it, it's a really ugly, cultural, nasty situation. They call Jesus one of those. You're a God betrayer, Israel, Israel hating, despicable human being. On top of that, you are demon possessed. I mean, Jesus has to be crazy. That's what, that's what they're saying. In those days, they associated craziness, being mad. They associated with uh, all mental illnesses with having a demon. Now, it is true that we could use, or, or they could use sometimes the term demon possessed, or you have a demon just to say you're crazy. You know, the term could be used loosely. Oh, you're crazy. You know, it could be used like that. When you say, you know, I think so-and-so is going to win the Super Bowl this year. And then, oh, you have a demon. It could be used like that to say that something was crazy. But given the way this talk has started, you know, you're a Samaritan. I doubt that the term demon-possessed, or you have a demon, is being used here in any way less than the worst possible. So they go to the next stage. They're, they're arguing until actually now they're like, you know what? Now cheeks are red, veins are on the forehead, they're throbbing, they're pulsing. Everybody, I mean, they're fuming. And they start calling Jesus' names. They just start calling Jesus' names. You are a, Samarit, a demon-possessed Samaritan. That's worse than a pig. That's worse than a pig. That's the personification of everything they judge to be despicable. And that's what they are calling Jesus. Jesus, he comes back in verse 49, and he doesn't address the Samaritan issue. Like I said before, he doesn't engage in the name-calling, God-belittling type of argument. Just go straight to, just refuting it, just denying it. I don't have a demon. Now, is it how you fight? Do you fight like Jesus? Is that how you fight? Do you let emotions come to it and next thing you know you're calling people names? And That belittles God. That belittles God. Jesus, as we're going to see, He's not after his, his own glory. He just leaves it all in the hands of God. He says, you know what? I'm not seeking my glory. My Father is. Shouldn't that be our own? 
Shouldn't that be our attitude in solving conflict? Why fight for glory, for pride? You know, I'm really good at trying to win arguments, regardless of having reason or not, regardless of being right or not. Really good at it. But is that how I should be? Is that how we should be? What matters is the truth. What, what matters if you win an argument? You know, we're going to be in, in heaven eternally. How much is that going to matter, you know, in a thousand years from now, a billion years from now, that you won an argument? Or that you, yell at the person, you yelled at the person you love and made a covenant for life to win that argument when you knew we were wrong? You know, how, how proud are we going to be? Or how proud are we even in this life of winning arguments like this? You know, sometimes arguments become like against a person as opposed to, to a concept, to an idea, or the keyword about the truth. The truth a billion years from now will matter. Jesus Christ being the true, unique, eternal Son of God that's an issue should go to the end. You know what? That, I won't budge. You can call me names. You can pick up stones. But that one, I cannot. I cannot step back on that one. Even if I did, I would be a liar. I would be a liar because that's the truth. That's one that we should fight for. And, you know, this one, I won't back down. You know, so it, it's a good idea to fight like Jesus, not engage in name-calling. And that's exactly what he does. He goes straight to say, you know what? I don't have a demon. 49, is that what it is? 49, I don't, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Now, see how he puts in contrast, how he puts it as different from, one is different from the other. You know, the two uh, propositions in, after and before, but, the word but, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. Honoring my Father is different than having a demon. It's in contrast, in opposition. It's two different things. I do not like pink, but I like blue. I don't like pink. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. I don't watch baseball, but I watch real sports. Okay? That, it, different things. All right? <laughs> all right? So th they're two different things. The word but, that's, how, that, that's what it does. So honoring, the devil is not going to honor the Father. Okay? <laughs> we won't name call her. The, the, <laughs> a lot of uncomfortable laughing. The devil, demons, they will do a lot of things, but they will not honor God. They just won't. So Jesus is saying, you know how I show you that I'm not, that I do not have a demon, that I, I am not demon-possessed? Because I honor my Father. The mission of my life is to honor my Father. About the, 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 the Samaritan thing, it's just name-calling. He doesn't, he doesn't address it. He says, hey, you know, I'm not a Samaritan. One, I mean, it's clear. The man has an accent that is not a Samaritan accent. Everybody knows that he comes, quote-unquote, from Galilee, like they say, can anything, you know. So he, he, is, a, a, he is a Galilean, you know, People know him around. It's not like he just appeared out of nowhere and they don't know, 
They don't know him. Oh, he's a Samaritan. No, he has a certain appearance, a certain cultural appearance that um, his accent, he's not a Samaritan. Everybody knows it. They're just trying to insult him. He doesn't even address it. But if the term Samaritan means everything I said, a despicable human being who is a God-hater, when he argues that he honors his father, doesn't he crush that argument too, that insult too? So that one is just put to rest once again. You know, he just refutes both accusations, just, just saying, you know what, I honor my father. Now let's go over verse, uh, uh, verse 50. In the end of 49, he says, you dishonor me. And then um, let's read verse 50. We'll do the end of 49 and 50 um, together. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He is the judge. So these guys, they don't honor Jesus. You know what Jesus is saying? You know what? I left my throne in heaven. I come here. I didn't come for my own glory. You don't honor me? That's okay. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I came to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus does deserve all the glory. And all the honor, he deserves to be honored by these people and every human being that was ever born. He deserves that, but he's not seeking his glory. In fact, Jesus left his glory. He left his throne in heaven and he, he, he became a man. He, he took humanity upon himself and he lived in, in, in the filth of, of men, of, of, of sinful men. He lived on earth and he came not to be glorified. He came not to be to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be despised. He came to be humiliated. He came to receive the reproach of men. He came to receive the wrath of God upon himself against us sinful men. He wasn't born in a mansion. That's the be- one of the beauties of our God that is revealed in the gospel, that God Himself would take humanity upon Himself and live in such sinful, crazy con- conditions, such low conditions, experience this kind of existence among sinful men and receive a punishment that... that was never due to Him. It was never His. He never deserved it. Just so we could enjoy His life. Just so we could have His perfect life, even though He lived in sin, in, in the midst of sin. He lived in the world. He was never of the world. He was never engaged in sinful disposition, in sinful behavior. He never sinned. So that perfect life, now upon faith, upon our placing our faith in Him, is ours. God looks at us and He sees the perfection of Jesus. It's given to us. When Jesus is going to say, next verse, He's going to say, you know, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He'll never see death. Then they'll interpret it as taste death because the word actually, that's actually what Jesus is saying. Stare death in the face continually and deeply and experience that. You know, when Jesus says that, you know, if anyone trusts me, if anyone believes in me, 
never see death. If anyone keeps my word. And now please don't think that keep my word or keeping the words of Jesus. Please don't think that that means I need to obey all the rules. I need to obey all the commandments in the Bible. I, I, I need to, to, you know what, to be accepted. I, I need to be a good person. So God will accept me. Those things are all important. But that's not what it means. When Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. So you, you might say, okay, that, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that I, I need to be perfect. He's saying I need to try. I need to try. I'll do my best and I commit the rest, right? I'll, I'll do my best and then God is see, God's going to see that I have a sincere heart. And he's going to understand, you know, and then he... We won't say it that way, but he grades on the curve and we're in because God saw that I tried. And then the logical progression of this thought is that all of a sudden you have heaven filled with imperfect people that tried really hard. I don't see how, hell can, how heaven can be a lot better than earth. You know, if everybody's like imperfect or sinners and, and they, they make mistakes and they do wrong things, but they tried really hard not to. That's what religion will tell you. Religiosity will say, and, and, and just so you know, that is the, in my opinion, that is the greatest weapon the devil has against us. The devil hates our guts, and religion is, it's weird coming from the preacher, right? But religion is the greatest weapon the devil has against us. Someone wrote, I think, this is coming to mind right now, um, someone, I think it was J. Gresson Mason, that, that Gresson Machen, that wrote something about if, if uh, the devil was the mayor of this city, you know, and everything would go right, the, the trees would be trimmed, and the fences would be painted, and the houses would be beautiful, all the children would say, yes, sir, and no, sir, no one would disobey, and they all live in community, and they say nice things to each other, I'm paraphrasing, right? And everybody would go to church on Sunday where Jesus is not preached. We think of the devil, think about destruction, and, and he does bring destruction. But that's not his greatest weapon. Because actually, in the midst of our tears, the, our moments of fellowship with God, they're much sweeter and a lot of times deeper than any other moment in our lives. So destruction is not the greatest weapon he has. Tragedy is not the greatest weapon he has. But convincing you that you're trying really hard and you're obeying, and, and even in a subconscious or unconscious way, you, you don't need Jesus because you're trying really hard, that is the greatest weapon Satan has against us. That's what religion says. Obey, try really hard so that God will accept you. Obey, try really hard, try harder so that God will bring you into His family, so that God will love you. When the Gospel says, what Jesus is saying right here is, trust my word, keep my, commands, my commandments, keep my word. What it means is, trust the one who has kept the law of God perfectly for you. And when you obey, do it out of delight, out of joy, because He has conquered everything for you. And no matter what happens, no one's going to pluck you from His hand. 
Because you are accepted, because you are loved, because you have been brought into the family of God and you can call Him Father, Daddy, because of that, you obey Him. Because it is the new disposition of your heart. Another insert that is nowhere near my notes is that I, I read a grieving, grieving, grieving article, blog post last night from a trustworthy uh, a pastor in Brazil. Uh, I, actually, I actually told him uh, over the internet, I told him, you know, if it weren't you telling us this, I would think this is a, a, a cruel, tasteless joke. Uh, it is so bad in nature that I, I, I uh, don't even think I can get away with it. Uh, telling you from the pulpit. But it's a very grieving thing. It, it's like the, the so-called church doing uh, what the world does and putting, putting the, the buzzword in Brazil is gospel. If everything is, is go, like gospel music, it doesn't really mean the style of music. It means, it means any song, any lyrics put in contemporary uh, um, uh, rhythms. It may be uh, rap, hip-hop, rock and roll, a country, that, that's the big word, gospel. If it has a, 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 like a somewhat, if it says Bible words, if it has Bible words, it's gospel. So, in essence, is the so-called church doing a segment of it doing what the world does, just as immoral, and attaching the name, I mean, it's a whole industry, attaching the name gospel to it, or it would be equivalent to evangelical here, right? Right? Uh, this is why we really have to, to, um, to define our terms. What do you mean by evangelical? We don't know anything anymore. Things really have to be defined so we can get any clarity. And um, what happened is that to be a Christian, to keep His Word is exactly that. It's to trust in Him who has kept the commandments of God for us, He has lived perfectly for us. And the reason why we delight in it, it's not because we made a certain decision, because we made a certain profession, or because we hang out with evangelical people or Christians, and, and now we're enculturated, we're in the middle of that, and we go have pizza together, and we listen to music, and it's nice, and see clips on YouTube, and you're part of that evangelical culture, you know, and, and no decision or being part of a certain culture has made you a Christian, ever. It's no different than being in, in, in the midst of the lions and saying, I'm a lion. No, you're dinner. You're not a lion. Just because you're in the midst of them. What makes you a Christian is this new heart that it's a total transformation from the core of your being where God Himself transforms you. And where there was no delight before, where it was just duty, I have to do this, I have to do that. Now you see Jesus and you delight in Him. Now all of a sudden, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is beautiful. It is a change of heart. You are a different person. The old man dies. I mean, provided that sometimes he keeps trying to resurrect and, and you know. But that old man dies. I have new, a new nature, new desires, new affections, new delights, new passions. Now I like the things of God. And I like God and I like the things that, that belong to His salvation. And it, this was just brought to mind, this grieving situation that I mentioned, because, you know, everybody keeps saying I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, because at a certain point they, they said something, or, or because they made a certain profession, or they, they got enculturated, and that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is this total transformation that causes you to, in Jesus' words, to keep His word, trusting Him who has kept 
His word. Perfectly for you. That's what it means. So that from that starting point, wow, Jesus did it all for me. He accomplished it all. He conquered it all. Hell, death, the grave. I'm in the family of God. I can be called a son of God. Of course I'll obey. It's not based on my performance. You know? Of course I'm going to try to perform. I love this. I've never gotten a better deal than this. You know, uh, I'm going to butcher there, but there's, there's this pastor. You guys used to go there, Tullian. He says, there's, you know, getting better is, not, is better than not getting better. But there is a much better way to get better. It is when you stop trying to get better, but you trust on the one who is better. Okay, try to repeat it. <laughs> so there's a better way to get better. It's not trying hard, trying harder, do better. Try. No, relax. Jesus won, okay? Read the end of the book. He's, he won. So now from there, you're accepted. So from there... You obey from your place in the family of God, from your delight that comes from a new heart. You trust in Him. And of course you do everything to obey Him. And even when you don't, you stumble and you fall. I never said that to my children. When they're learning to walk and they stumble and fall, I never said, stupid, I don't love you anymore. I've never done that. And I'm evil. So Jesus says, you know, if you who are evil, you know what is good for your children. I mean, much more your Father in heaven. Are you kidding me? So you stumble and fall and you disobey and you fall in sin. Jesus doesn't cast you out because He has done everything needed for you to get to heaven, for you to enjoy eternal life. So He just picks you up. He gives you. He grants you repentance where you dislike what you did. You know, however long it takes <clears throat> for you to get there. It's not just grief of like worldly grief. I got caught. No, it's clearly, Lord, I, I didn't want to do this. I hate this. Give me the strength to come out of this. You know, then you, you confess your sin, you repent. Um, honestly, a lot of times if you don't confess your sin, God will bust you, you know. And somehow the congregation, your pastor, your friend, your wife, your husband, they will find out through the craziest ways God will show your sin as King David, right? They will, God will bust you. Not as punishment, because Jesus has taken the punishment that was due to us, but as a correction so that you can be brought out of sin and be restored and built up again into a holy life, a life of dependence on the Lord Jesus. Amen? Clear? That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That it doesn't depend on me, but on Jesus Christ Himself. And the gospel, I mean, this is why the gospel is so crazy. This is why it needs supernatural intervention. Try telling someone you're God. See how they're going to react. I mean, I, I tried it just for fun. I tried it, I've told you guys before, I tried it on my wife one day and... Uh, and it wasn't long before she was laughing hysterically. I did it here in the beginning of my sermon back then. And I think it was like eight seconds before you guys started giggling. It's just a ridiculous claim. It's a blasphemous claim. Unless it's true. But people won't believe. 
unless there's a natural, a, a supernatural intervention from God. The gospel is radically God-centered, and we are radically man-centered. The gospel is about God, who became a man, who in the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God left His throne in heaven, and He came, like we just saw, not to be glorified, not to seek His own glory, to blow His own horn. He came to be a servant. He humbled Himself. And that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. There is no God like this. Even the ancient gods, I mean, there has, we have never heard of a God like this who works for those who wait on Him. It's different than any other God. Every other religion, except for biblical Christianity, will say, perform to get accepted, work to earn salvation work to earn the highest degree of, of exaltation or evolution, spiritual evolution. Biblical Christianity, the gospel, will say, Jesus has done it. Jesus has worked. He's accomplished. Relax. Trust in Him. Breathe. He's done it. In the gospel, I mean, it, the king gives his life for the people. The Holy One sacrifices for, in the place of the unholy, the perfect for the corrupted. Okay? The pure one for the defiled. The blessed one becomes a curse on the cross so that in Him we become the righteousness of God. So when you are telling people this, or if you are wrestling with this in your own life, know that if it sounds crazy, it's because it is. And you desperately need the intervention of God, be it to convert the person, to shed His love abroad the person's heart, or in your own heart, if you are in, this, in these stages of argumentation with and against Jesus, if you're resisting Him, because on the cross, Jesus received hell on the cross, so that I wouldn't receive hell eternally. Tweet that. <laughs> Jesus received hell on the cross, so hell wouldn't have me for, for eternity. Just make peace with it. Just expect people to not believe it. It's okay. It's not in our hands to make people believe. The Holy Spirit has that on His hand, not ours. If, just know that if there isn't an, inter, uh, uh, an intervention, supernatural intervention, it's not going to happen. Trust God. Trust God and tell people. Confront sin just like Jesus did. Confront sin to the end. Lovingly, with the truth, not engaging in, in sinful argumentation and name calling and, and angry words. Confront sin with the gospel. Now, the one who keeps Jesus' words will, will never taste death. I mean, have you thought about this? Doesn't that comfort you? And I know that Jesus is talk, going way deeper than, than just a natural physical death. I know he's going way deeper than that. He's talking about a, a concept of eternal separation from the loving, kind presence, blessing, blessed presence of God, his grace upon you. I know that's what Jesus is saying. The opposite of that is, is eternal conscious torment. Jesus is going way beyond a physical death. But he's not excluding that. 
Have you thought about the fact that you, as a believer in Christ, you will not have to taste death, meaning to stare it in the face and experience it deeply? I mean, the, the only analogy that I, that I... I mean, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Second Corinthians that he even prefers to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. One thing means the other, equals the other. If you're absent from the body, you're not floating around anywhere else. Okay, suffering this death concept of separation from God. No, it's literally like the blink of an eye, I guess. You know, once your soul, your spirit, your, your material part get detached from the body, immediately the presence of the Lord. Now, seven years ago, I had a, I had a, 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 a leg operation. They had to put me under because they had to saw my leg and put everything in place and, 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 and hammer some, some nails in there, like seven screws. So they didn't let me experience that. It certainly happened. But all I know is that, you know, the doctor was like, or, or the nurse, she was like, count till 10. I don't even remember if I started, <laughs> you know. And then the next thing I know, it was hours later, the next, the next thing I know, some other nurse started clapping. And I'm like, you know, and I'm thirsty. And I didn't experience the nails or screws going into my, into my, my bones. It happened, but it wasn't an experience of mine. I cannot recount what they were listening to during the surgery. I cannot tell you what kind of conversations they had, what kind of tools they used. All I know is that I, I, I had a, a broken leg before, and then I woke up with a bionic leg. That's all I know. Okay, that, That's all that happened. I didn't experience. The believer in Christ will not taste death in this way. Once... Your immaterial part, your, your, your soul, spirit, mind, leaves your physical, this earth suit. It's straight into the presence of a loving God. I mean, that to me sounds like a good motivation to come to Christ. So you fear death? Fear not, my child. Come. I mean, Jesus is saying, I mean, right now you can make sure you don't suffer that. You fear death? Jesus is guaranteeing you, specific promise, guaranteeing you, you will not taste death. Not only the physical death that we just talked about, it, but eternal separation from the loving kind, blessed presence of God bestowing on His love upon you. You never have to experience that. That is a great motivation to come to Christ. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't that a great evangelistic tool to tell people? I mean, you don't understand. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is guaranteeing you, you won't have to taste it. Why won't you come? Why won't you come to Christ? Great evangelistic tool. But you know what? They don't see it that way. They don't buy it. 52, 53, they're like, you know what? We, now we know that you have a demon. You are a lunatic. So you're saying that, I mean, you're saying, first of all, that you're greater than our father Abraham? I mean, Abraham is the father of our faith, the father of our nation. We all come from him. All the prophets died. Abraham died. All the greats of the past, they all died. And you claim to offer, to have, to bestow upon whoever you want? Something that they couldn't even get for themselves? <laughs> this is ridiculous. 
Is that what you're saying? And Jesus, you know, he didn't say it, but he's like, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying, actually. I am greater than Abraham. In fact, I created him. I'm the one who made the covenant with him. And it's being fulfilled. And he says, you know, Abraham, he saw my day and he rejoiced. You know, these guys, they claim to be sons of Abraham, and they're not rejoicing. They're trying to murder Jesus. Now, I don't think Jesus is, and, and there are people who think this, but it's fine. I don't think Jesus is talking about um, a prophetic vision that Abraham, Abraham had, because there's just no, no report of that prophetic vision in the Bible. I don't think Abraham sat and, and had a vision like John had about the end times or whatever. Um, I think Jesus is talking about Abraham's faith. When God shows up and makes promises and makes a covenant and says, you know, leave your family behind, leave town and go somewhere else. And, they, and, and Abraham obeyed and went uh, with his family. Uh, I get this from Hebrews 11. I'm just going to read it. Hebrews 11, 8. Hebrews 11, 8 says this. And then 13, okay? If you're making notes, Hebrews 11, 8. And I'm going to read um, 13. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out. And then verse 13. So by faith, Abraham obeyed. And then verse 13. These, all the patriarchs, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's how, by faith, Abraham saw the fulfillment as God kept keeping his promises in the life of Abraham. Abraham kept seeing, wow, I'm 100 years old. God said he was going to give me a son, and he did. Wow, now I got another, wow, now, now look, now I have grandkids, wow. And, and as the promise kept unfolding and, and God kept being faithful, Abraham, by faith, he saw that one day the one that would bless all the families of the earth, he was going to come. And that through the descendants of Abraham, God was going to do something great. And that's how Abraham did see the day of Jesus. And he rejoiced that God, his Redeemer, was going to keep the promise in verse 55, Jesus says, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to say this once again. You people don't know God. I've said it other times. I don't know how else to say it. It's like, I'm going to have to say it once again. You guys don't get it. You know, because they'll say, they'll say that, uh, that, that wow, you're young. You haven't been there. You're saying, you know. So verse 55, but you have not known him. See, I know him. So you guys don't know God. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar. Isn't it like this? When you have a conviction, you know something to be true, you cannot just turn a switch and say, oh, that's not true. You might even say it because some other interest or because you fold to pressure. We cannot just say this is not true. And you know what? You guys do that. That's what Jesus is saying. You guys are liars. If I change my word on this, I'd, I'd be a liar, and I ain't doing it. I cannot lie. 
What I'm saying is true, and you guys don't know God. If I change my, my story now, I'll be a liar just like, just like you guys. You know, Abraham saw my day, and, and, and he was glad. The Jews come back with, uh, you know, you're not even 50, and, and you've seen Abraham. And then, I mean, just the pointer is that Jesus didn't say, I saw him, although it's true. He said, Abraham saw me. They come back with, oh, you're saying you saw Abraham? You know, so it just goes to say that when you're in arguments like this, you, you keep talking past each other. You're not interested in what the person is saying anymore. They just want to antagonize and, and fight and call names, you know. Then we come to the pinnacle of this text, of this chapter, and the greatest claim of, of divine nature that Jesus has ever made. Jesus says, you know what, um, before Abraham was, I am unmistakably using the personal name of God. I am. When Moses was outside of Egypt, he had left Egypt already, he, he wanted nothing to do with that, you know, he had to run away, he thought he was going to uh, get killed if he went back. God appeared to him in a burning bush, right? The, the, burn, the bush was burning and would, be cons would not be consumed. And God starts talking uh, to Moses and, you know, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Um, so Moses is talking to him and, and God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and liberate and free his people. And Moses is afraid. They have a little a dialogue. Moses says, you know, I stutter. You know, it's like I can't, I get nervous or whatever, I'm not good with words, and, and you know, God gets past that, God, God's got it, okay, he's got this. So God tells him, uh, he tells God, what do I do, what do I say if the Israelites, if the Hebrews, I get back there, what do I do if they say, you know, who are you coming from, what God is this, who sent you? God tells Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. I mean, the name I am is the personal name of God. There's this, this uh, uh, when we see Lord in capitals in the Bible, that's, that's the name it, it conveys. You know, the personal name of God, um, that conveys his immutability, you know, because there was never a time where he was something and now he's not. You know, a time where he was something and then a time that he stopped being that. You know, that conveys his eternality, his eternal nature. God always is. There was never a time when God was not, when God didn't exist. That conveys his power of creation, him as his, his title or, or his nature as the creator. You know, he is the creator, not creation, because he self-exists. He created everything there is. There was never a time where God didn't exist. Therefore, he created everything. He upholds, instead, he upholds everything by his word. God is eternal, immutable. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. And obviously, he's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jewish people, and Jesus. And of these men, or he should be, they clearly don't have a, an affection for him. But Jesus Christ has just claimed to be the one who created the heavens and the earth and created them and have all the rights to demand whatever he wants from them and from you and me. He has life in himself. Therefore, he's the only one who can give life. He didn't need anybody. 
to create Him or to give Him life. I mean, this is, this is difficult to wrap our heads around it. I mean, it gives you a headache just trying. But we can't understand what the Scripture says. The name I am is the personal name of God and Jesus has just used it. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the covenant God that you claim to, to have a relationship with. And that's the pinnacle of the debate. That's where they go to the next level. There's nowhere else to go. They pick up stones to kill him. Now, this is very true in our lives. Whether, whether you're, you are telling someone about Jesus and, 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 and telling the claims of Christ to people, people are always, let's talk about outside of Christ first, people are always at some stage with, with Christ, at least where they, they have knowledge of his claims. They might be arguing intellectually, oh, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't understand, this is too crazy or whatever, you know, this is too deep, you know, I don't have the patience, I don't have the desire. Or they might be rejecting him, no, this is probably a lie, this probably wasn't there, this for the Bible is this, the Bible is that. They might be calling him names, you know, this guy has created more problems than, than, than solutions. You know, the problem of the world is, is all these religions and, and Jesus with all this, this exclusivity talk. You know, they might be rejecting him or they might be completely just attacking him like this with this anger of picking up stones to kill him. And, and, and you know, I, I don't know where you are, but I think we're certainly not exempt from, from warnings, from looking at situations like this and Where's my heart? Where's my trust? You know, is it my performance? Am I keeping His word? I mean, because the, 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 the appropriate response to a God who is glorious and powerful and beautiful and holy, like this God presented to us in the Bible, an appropriate response to this is to bow down and worship Him. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing else to do. You have to surrender your life to Jesus. That's the appropriate response when you see how beautiful He is and everything that He's done to rescue sinful men. The appropriate response is to surrender your life to Him and say, you know what? I, I lay my weapons down. Take me. Take me. I'm yours. I want to be yours. Apart from a supernatural intervention, that doesn't happen. And we stay in our own sin and we fight Him. Whether it's open defiance or, no, I'm a good person. You know, I, I, I haven't killed anybody. I, I don't run around on my wife. You know, and I'm trying to be good, like we mentioned before. However it is, one thing I want to leave with you today uh, is that there is... No indifference to the claims of Christ. To not choose is a horrible choice. You cannot be indifferent. You either worship Him or you reject Him. To not make a choice is to make a choice. And a horrible choice. One, whether that applies to whatever you're grappling with, 
or applies to your telling people the claims of Christ, they have to know to not choose is in fact choosing. Amen? Let's worship Him. Let's worship Him. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the beauty of the Gospel, for everything that You have done in sending Jesus. I thank You for seeking His glory and displaying it to us. The pages of Scripture on the cross. You are beautiful. And once again, we see You in the claims of Jesus Christ, Your beloved Son. Let us follow Him. Let us keep His Word. Trusting in Him, who is our Redeemer, who accomplished everything for us. Let us obey you from that position, from being accepted, from being adopted by you. In his glorious, beautiful, good name, I pray. Amen. Amen.